Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth, reminding you to please rate, review, subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to this. Where you're listening to this right now, whatever that app is, rate us, review us, subscribe to us, help us get in front of more people. I so appreciate you for doing that. We're, of course, on social media where lots of fun stuff happens every week, including lots of guessing games about upcoming episodes and feedback on future episodes and teasers and fun interactive stuff happens at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both of those platforms as well. We have the incredible niche legend dad hat, the look for summer available in our merch store at poppantheonpod.com and gorgeous, gorgeous, the bi-coastal phenomenon queer pop party that I started with my friends is having its pride installments next Friday, June 9th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles where it's going to be Lady Marmalade night. I'm going to be playing all your favorite songs by Pink, Maya, Little Kim, Christina, Missy, and of course everybody else in the pop universe. And then we are making our debut in Brooklyn the following Friday, June 16th at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. Tickets for both are available in the show notes of this episode, and I want to see you guys there. I cannot wait for these parties. They're going to be so much fun. So I will see all of my bi-coastal baddies at Gorgeous Gorgeous LA on June 9th and Gorgeous Gorgeous New York on June 16th. Also, please join our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash poppantheon. It's called Pop Pantheon All Access. We're doing at least three bonus episodes of the show per month. It's really fun what's happening over there, I gotta say. If you are listening to only the main episodes of this show, you are only getting half the story as someone famous else once said. So join our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash poppantheon for our bonus content, access to our Discord, and so much more. Okay, so it is Pride Month, and we are kicking off a month of content related to pride, related to queerness on Pop Pantheon. Obviously, being queer and pop music are incredibly interlaced as ideas, and all of our content this month is addressing that relationship in some way or another. The first episode today is about a historic pop figure of recent times, Kim Petras, the first openly transgendered woman to top the Hot 100 and the second transgendered woman to win a Grammy Award. I normally wouldn't be addressing an artist this early in their rise in the show, but Kim's story, as well as all of the attendant controversies and pretty great music, made me want to make an exception here. So in anticipation of her major label debut, Feed the Beast, which will be out in a couple weeks on June 23rd, which we will be talking about on Patreon, patreon.com slash poppantheon if you want to listen to that. Without further ado, for our first Pride episode of 2023, here is Pop Pantheon Kim Petrus. Generally speaking, I try to keep this program focused on artists who have had a long enough legacy to really sink our teeth into. Tons of albums and hits, myriad phases and eras we can look back on with the power of hindsight. But to kick off our Pride content this year, I made an exception for an artist that I feel is exceptional, just by force of her sheer existence, Kim Petras. I've talked a lot on the show about how pop and pop stars are, in large part, the providence of queer people. We in our culture serve as major inspirations for so many stars and will often be their fans long after the rest of the world has moved on. And yet, our community continues to be woefully underrepresented in the form of actual pop stars themselves. Petrus, despite still being early in her rise through the pop universe, is perhaps the first out trans woman to even be in the running as a mainstream pop aspirant, and that alone, before she 
she's even had a real solo hit to speak of, makes her an important and historic figure worthy of consideration. That her short career is already laden with other fascinating controversies and a fistful of the best pop bangers of the last few years to boot makes this story all the more sticky. Kim Petrus was born in Cologne, Germany in 1992 to her mother, a choreographer, and her father, an architect. Kim began writing songs early in her life and saw the global force of pop music as a venue for dreaming big about just how far she might go if she could come up with a few hit songs. She also came out as trans very early in her life, and Kim has spoken at length about how uniquely supportive for that era her family was of her identity. Partially as a way to garner awareness and receive gender-affirming surgery at 16 rather than 18, which was then the legal age in Germany, Kim appeared in a documentary and made various appearances on television in Germany and throughout Europe discussing her trans identity and telling her story, leading her to being labeled by the press as, quote, the world's youngest transsexual. Kim also had major ambitions as a pop singer and songwriter and began releasing music in 2008. During this period, she moved to LA in an attempt to be in the music biz mix, writing songs both for herself and for other artists. Despite a few placements here and there, none of it stuck until the mid-2010s, when a friend introduced her to super producer Dr. Luke. At that moment, Luke was known primarily for two things. Being one of the most prolific and celebrated hitmakers of the century, having written and produced smashes for everyone from Kelly to Katie to Pink, Miley, Rihanna, Britney, and pretty much every other pop star in existence. And also, right then, being in the middle of a red-hot controversy when, in 2014, his protege, the pop star Kesha, accused him of numerous offenses, including sexual harassment, a massive bombshell that had rendered Pop's golden boy completely radioactive in the eyes of the general public. I should note here that Luke has denied all of these claims. He also immediately took a liking to Kim, signing her to his record label and enlisting as her primary collaborator. Kim released her first single with Luke, the gaudy pay-on to material excess, I Don't Want It At all in 2017. I don't want it at all with its time warping sensibility somehow spinning the pop music of 1982, 1999, 2010, and 2017 into one hell of a sugar bomb. Complete with Kim's signature shouty, bratty vocals and attitude, presented a fully formed new pop entity. Working against the pop trends of the moment, then deep in a well of post-lord, slow tempos, dour moods, and pained introspection, Kim and Luke celebrated glistening pop artifice, materialistic excess, and hyper-femininity. The video for the song even featured the queen of glittering artifice and materialistic hyper-femininity herself, Paris Hilton. I Don't Want It At All did not become a mainstream hit by any means, but it and Kim were immediately embraced by the queer community, and the song became one of the big gay club anthems of that year. Kim and Luke followed this up with a sheer cavalcade of singles, which eventually together became known as Era One, and each of which operated in a similar aesthetic guise, drawing on various pieces of pop history to make music that was also thoroughly modern, airtight, streamlined, and filled to the brim 
rim with irresistible hooks like Hillside Boys, All the Time, and Faded. They also showcased other sides of Kim's persona on tracks like Can't Do Better and Heart to Break, music which put Kim's powerful singing voice to use on big bombastic songs of loneliness and longing. As a whole, these songs, along with her beloved guest appearance on Charlie XCX's Unlock It, made Kim the ascendant, quote, gay pop girly of the late 2010s. But despite the bulletproof nature of these pop records, none of them crossed Kim over outside of this particular queer niche. On top of that, her association with Luke dogged her at every turn. When asked about it in interviews, she'd often give pretty mushy responses, including one where she claimed, quote, I wouldn't work with someone I believe to be an abuser of women. This made being a Kim Petras fan a complicated endeavor even to her most ardent supporters. Add to this the many hurdles she continued to face simply for being herself, a trans woman attempting a mainstream pop career, and the entire Kim Petras pop star endeavor could at times feel insurmountable. Still, Kim and Luke continued unabated and throughout the late 2010s flooded the market with music, including a non-stop torrent of Lucy singles, her 2018 and 2019 Halloween mixtape series Turn Off the Light, and eventually her debut album 2019's Clarity, which saw the pair making darker, icier, emotionally remote polyglot pop bangers of Bacchanalian excess. All of this music continued to be well-received critically and by existing fans, but again, none broke Kim out. In August 2021, Kim signed a deal with major label Capital and began working on an album. She released a series of singles like Future Starts Now and Coconuts, none of which charted. She also released the campy, explicit sex romp mixtape Slut Pop in early 2022. But the major inflection point in Kim's career to date came in September of that year, when she appeared as a feature on superstar Sam Smith's global smash, Unholy, which hit number one here in the US. The success of Unholy made Kim both the first openly transgendered person to top the Hot 100, and early the following year, the second to win a Grammy Award. Mm, daddy, daddy, if you wanna drop the attic, give me love, give me Fendi, my Balenciaga daddy, you gonna need to bag it up, cause I'm spending on Since Unholy, Kim has released a number of solo singles, including Jesus Was a Rockstar, Burr, and Alone featuring Nicki Minaj, all of which precede her forthcoming major label debut album, Feed the Beast, due on June 23rd. Here with me to discuss the ongoing complex rise of Kim Petras is writer for Vulture, Jason Frank. All right, I'm here once again with writer for Vulture, Jason Frank. Jason, welcome back to the show. Let's get into everybody's favorite controversy <laughs> machine, Kim Petras. You know, it's interesting because we don't normally do episodes on artists that are at this juncture in their careers. Yeah. We tend to want to wait a little bit until there's a little bit more history to the entire endeavor. But I amended that for this because I do think Kim is a historic figure. Mm -hmm. She is perhaps the first and most viable out trans pop star ever. And for our Pride series, I was trying to think about episodes that we could do that help mark the passage of time in terms of queer artists in the pop space. And to me, Kim feels like a landmark. Interestingly enough, I also think she is 
representative perhaps of some of the continued difficulties for trans people in this space. So for all of those reasons, and because I think personally that she's made a lot of really great music and her story already has a lot of rich twists and turns to it, as I think you were alluding to earlier, Mm -hmm. I kind of thought maybe this was an okay moment for us to fall back on that rule a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we can mourn the old Kim Petras in this episode and also (laughs) talk about the BB Rexification of Kim Petras. Oh my God. Just say it right up top. That is so fucking funny. It's so true. I have to say when I was going back through this music, and of course you won't be shocked to hear, I lived through it all. I have to say that it was stark how her music has shifted, especially in, I guess, the most recent few years versus what I thought was one of the more exciting arrivals of a pop star in terms of just sheer batting average on tunes in the early part of her career, which I kind of had a bit of a sad feeling about because I was like, there's a whole world of people that are meeting this artist now. Most of the public are meeting her in the post-Unholy universe, whereas by far most of her good music feels like something that they might never get to hear or never uncover. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) But the music's still coming. The BB Rexification is too much. Honestly, she's not stacking up to BB Rex's songs with this one, I gotta say. (laughs) BB Rex has got her, I think. A little behind the scenes, I messaged before we recorded and I was like, Where's BB Rexa on the tier list? And he was like, well, Kim's pretty squarely in a tier and we'll discuss it. And I was like, yeah, but we'll see what's going on. She might degrade herself to a different tier through bad, bad singles as we continue on. Anyway. I think one of the most interesting elements of Kim when her music is at her best is the interplay between the sort of simplicity, decadence, silliness, sort of winking frivolity of her musical persona with the sort of tangential or maybe subterranean weight that her identity brings to some of this work. That was kind of the overarching thing that I walked away from this particular deep dive with, which is that I feel like Kim is a student of pop history and she really celebrates the ideas of pop artifice. She is not here for the sort of lordification of pop. And I think that it'll be interesting to talk about how her original music sounded in contrast to like what was actually happening in pop in 2017. And perhaps part of the reason why that music didn't totally click in a bigger way. But I was actually feeling moved by a lot of her songs in a way that I don't know if they are intentionally that way or not, because as a presentation, I have a sense of her as somebody that is completely sold on the idea of pop as the most artificial sense of the word. She revels in that this is about creating a persona. This is about celebrating larger than life cartoonish aspects of my worldview. But there's something about who she is as a person and maybe the way that she's able to sing, or I don't know, I'll be interested in unpacking this with you over the course of the conversation that actually makes a lot of this music, I feel, quite moving and have layers of depth to it that perhaps don't exist on the surface. Yeah, I guess this is my time to unload my big theory of Kim Petras. Go ahead. Especially early Kim Petras. And this is also aligned with Sophie. I think I came to this through something like face shopping. So Sophie in 2013 is doing something where she is, rather than looking backwards, which is what all 
electronic music in 2013 was doing Think Daft Punk, she starts to create something new. She pushes forward into something new and she creates something kind of out of nothing and something fabulous and something pop and something artificial that also speaks to a reality. There's an artificiality that speaks to a reality. I think Kim does that as well. I think that those things are not separate from their transness. I think that in how Kim has approached her identity, it's been a fight to have those girly things that she has. She's had to fight for that. She's had to create her own existence from people who would deny that existence. So in the way that pop has that artificiality, I think that there is a similar weight to pop for her because that's something you have to create out of nothing. There's an artificiality to pop maybe, but I don't think she sees it that way because it's real and it's natural, just like her existence is real and natural, even if people would describe it as artificial. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I also think the other element of it is the queer to queer mm-hmm. unspoken language. Yeah. There's so many female pop stars that sing about loneliness, that sing about heartbreak, all of these things. But I think with Cam in the mix, at least from queer to queer person, and we all exist in that world with her, there's something deeper that registers for me, perhaps as a queer listener. I don't know if it's there in her intentions, but at least in the way that I experience a song like Can't Do Better or Heart to Break or If You Think About Me or whatever, there are layers of depth to those songs, even in their sort of blast off uber maximalist pop artifice that actually I find incredibly moving and I think makes her songs not just kind of bulletproof, excellently made pop records, which a lot of especially the early ones are, but also give her persona and reason for existing in the pop firmament depth and meaning and power that it might not have otherwise. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's questions of pastiche that come up a lot with Kim. Sure. And I think that it is probably more accurate to say that she is not doing pastiche, but she is well-informed in a queer way that allows her to create something that might be considered camp, Mm -hmm. especially with that's how she bursts onto the scene. Anyway, before we get to her bursting onto the scene, because I'm going to talk about her artistry forever, we need to go back to Germany because I will never stop talking about this if we don't go now. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I have a lot to say about that too. We have a lot to say about this. (laughs) This is what it's going to be, dude. You know what, Jason? Like you said, let's go back to Germany. Get your plane ticket. Who is Kim Petras? Where is she born? What's her early life like? Tell me a little bit about her early story. So she's born outside of Cologne. Her family is filled with artists. Her mom's a jazz singer. She knows she is a woman very early on. She goes for hormone treatment first from the age of like 12. That's a big search. She finds doctors who are willing to do it. But one of the doctors wants to film a documentary about her, which happens, and Mm. that gets aired in Germany. She's how old at that point? I think she's 12 when that documentary first comes out. Right. Is her family supportive of this transition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The famous quote that her dad says is that 
I didn't see Kim as a problem. I saw her as my daughter Mm. or something like that. They are a remarkably supportive family for Kim. I do know that she's referenced meeting sex workers early in her life. Mm. It seemed like they were pretty open and artistic and had a framework for understanding the transgender identity pretty early on. Wow, that's really impressive, I have to say, for that particular moment in history. Because Kim was born in 1992, so she's only five years younger than I. And I just know what my experience was like as a queer person in New York City in somewhat of the same time period. So that's pretty radical for that particular moment in history. Yeah. And so she goes on to become, the quote is, I wouldn't use this word, but I'm going to use it here, the youngest transsexual in history. And that's like her big title. That is what she is known as. She does interviews in Britain. She does interviews in Germany about this. And it's her first time getting known. Our next guest is only sweet 16 and she's called Kim Petrus. And she has dreams of being an international pop star. But it's not just the scale of her ambition that makes young Kim very extraordinary. Well, Kim was born Tim and is believed to be the youngest person in the world to have had a sex change. And, uh, and she joins us now. And it's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Thank you very, very much. much indeed. Thank Welcome. you for having me. <laughs> so, um, so you were born in 1992 in Cologne yeah. in Germany. Right. And we've, we've met a number of, of people who've been in a sort of similar position, who've, okay. who've sat where you're sitting, and all have said from the word go there was no question that they knew precisely what they were. They were yeah. trapped in the wrong body. It's right. Um, I always knew it. You know, when I was a little kid, I was always wanting pink dresses, Barbie, everything. So, um, you know, I've never really lived as a boy. I've always wanted to live as a girl, so I really knew exactly who I was. And so that's Kim Petros's first time in the spotlight. Right. Simultaneously, she is obsessed with pop music and she wants to become a pop singer. That is already happening well before she is on British talk shows. So she is obsessed with Madonna. She wants to be a pop songwriter. She's obsessed with the idea of being behind the scenes early on because she likes all of the little parts of pop music. Mm. She likes the idea of creating pop music. It's not just the performing. She wants to be a great songwriter. Mm. And she's incredibly freakishly ambitious. And that's really important to know too. It's really interesting actually what you're talking about in terms of her fascination with the machination of making pop music because I think that that really speaks to the artists that we see today. I mean, we've already been referencing this a little bit, but Kim strikes me as student of pop. 100%. It's a term that we get overused a lot, but I think that Kim bears this out in her work. This is somebody that really likes to get in there and figure out how this stuff works and seems like she has a very deep understanding of pop history and also probably about the song machine, as John C. Brooke might refer to it. She strikes me as the type of person that really has a deep interest in pop music as an art form and sort of getting in there and taking that apart for herself feels like a huge part of her artistry as we know her today. 100%. She says she wants to be one of the great pop songwriters Mm. all the time. That is something that she is a vested interest in. And she gets her start actually writing songs. She sells, it's a jingle for detergent in Germany. Yeah. And that's how she saves up enough money to get to Los Angeles for the first time. Right. Where she writes like 200 songs. So she starts as a songwriter, which I think given her type of pop music and the people she's later associated with would be a surprise to some people because she is putting herself into a lineage with people who are not necessarily known for being great writers. I think Mm. Katy Perry, (laughs) who is not necessarily writing her own work. Right. He's laughing at me. You guys can all know that now. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm only laughing because the entire audience of this podcast is just completely consumed with what they believe is my distaste for Katy Perry, but is completely of their own minds and fabrications. I mean, <laughs> Katy Perry makes bobs. She also is the flop. Bob and flop. That's what they say. Even when she was doing well, she had flop energy and that was great. I think that's good. <laughs> no. Okay. Now that sounds bad. That music video for Last Friday Night can only be made by someone who has a little bit of flop energy to them. It actually is relevant to this conversation because I do think <laughs> Kim clearly loved that moment in pop music and was very taken with that particular brand of pop stardom and brand of pop artifice. I mean, there's clear connections between Teenage Dream era Katy Perry, not just because of Dr. Luke, but also just because of the type of pop star that Kim tries to present as. I mean, Kim is inherently a much edgier pop star than Katy Perry is, but there's something about the type of music that she makes that feels very much of numerous bygone eras, including that particular one. Yeah. And yet very much of her own time. I mean, it's an interesting thing that we'll get into. Anyway, so she moves to Los Angeles. You said she was in her mid-teens. So like Fade Away comes out in 2008. The B-side is when dreams come true. She's got this vocoder on that Fade Away song, mm -hmm. kind of doing sub-uffy over a sub-Stargate electronic R&B beat or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think, <laughs> interestingly, it does have the glitching mm. that she later becomes known for. So that's a little interesting fact is that Kim Petras was glitching early and glitching often. Although what it doesn't have that I think is interesting and that seems to be a kind of key to the Kim Petras formula moving forward is that brash, bratty vocal. Yeah. You know, that sort of screaming bratty vocal that kind of becomes her signature. It doesn't really have any vocal. It, it's mostly <laughs> vocoder. But I think she made those in Germany. Those came out in 2008 and they look like they were filmed in Germany. The music mm -hmm. videos in front of a like shtetl. Yeah. <laughs> So she comes to L.A., I believe, for the first time in 2011. And so those were already out. Right. Okay. So she's in L.A. and she's pursuing her work as a songwriter, more or less. She's just trying to be allowed to stay in L.A. She wants to get work so she can get a visa. She gets a song in the Bratz movie. Yeah. Fergie records one of her songs that doesn't end up being released. So she's making little steps along the way. Right. But it's as a songwriter, not as a pop star initially. What's up with this one piece of tape EP from 2011? I know you DM'd me this video yesterday. Is that part of her Germany era or her LA era? Yeah, I cannot tell. No one wants to write about one piece of tape. No <laughs> big profiles have really focused in on one piece of tape. Yeah. It's around that time when she's moving to LA, 2011. I don't think anyone officially put it out. She didn't have a publishing deal by then. And you can't really find the rest of that EP anywhere that came out in 2011. I was looking for that. I saw the one piece of tape video and one piece of tape is like an almost firework-esque EDM ballad or something like that. Speaking of Katy Perry.
super earnest, not really hitting on the postmodern irony that a lot of her work has. It feels almost like earnest uplift music or something like that. They're all bad, but she writes a lot. And so she gets better. Yeah. And that's the truth. She's not, and I think this is worth noting, she's not like a superstar in the videos. Yeah. You don't get the sense that she's popping off the screen either. It feels very Marnie Michaels yeah. to me from yeah. Girls in those music videos that she does. She's kind of receding into the background, but she's posing. Right. So she's in LA and sometimes in Germany. I know she also releases a couple songs with this DJ Klaus guy. And At that point, I feel like they stop being bad so much as just kind of anonymous, so of the moment, post-Avici, Zed, EDM. She hasn't located that thing that makes her very distinctive on record, you know? And this foreshadowing shows what can go wrong with her voice, which is that it can become anonymous if it's not used well. Right, right. Her right. voice is, I think, quite distinctive yeah. when it's being used in a way that uses the strengths of her voice. But if you're not using her strengths, she becomes nobody. And when she's got the right production, which I think brings in the next really important question here. The thing that really seems like it changes Kim's life in this trajectory is that she links up with one of the greatest producers of the modern era and also one of the most controversial figures in pop history, Dr. Luke. Is that happening right around this period as well, more or less? Yeah, she links up with Dr. Luke in 2016 to release her first song in 2017. By the time she links up with him, this scandal is already underway. The thing that's the most important is that Kesha, who Dr. Luke had worked with very intensely, he had written a lot of her biggest hits, accuses him of sexually assaulting her. And we should lay out, Dr. Luke has been covered ad nauseum on this show in episodes right. about Kelly Clarkson and episodes about Max Martin. So if you want to go back and listen to those for more details on who exactly this man is, do so. But I think just Cliff Notes version of Dr. Luke's career, he is a underground New York musician, also in the SNL band in the mid-90s. Hip-hop producer, honestly, for the most part, most deaf gives him his name. He links with Max Martin in 2003, 2004, when Max Martin is in a bit of a slump period. And together, they both kind of reinvent themselves as the premier pop rock producers of the mid-2000s, most notably on Kelly Clarkson's Since You've Been Gone, but also on songs by the Veronicas, Avril Lavigne, Pink, etc. And then they have another massive reinvention and huge swing of their career that begins with Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl, where they kind of morph into giant amalgam EDM, electronic dance music, polyglot producers through all of Katy Perry's big records. And then, of course, Dr. Luke's kind of first big protege signee is Kesha, who comes out in about 2010, and he produces all of the canonical Kesha songs from that period, from TikTok to Die Young, We Are Who We Are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, as Jason was laying out, probably around 2014 or 15, she accuses him of numerous abuses, essentially. Yeah, but it's worth noting that people also thought he was a creep beforehand. Yes. People don't like Luke, right. generally. And I think this is worth laying out to contrast with Kim. Yeah. When the documents from the trial with Kesha become unsealed, a lot of the pop stars were called to the stand as character witnesses. And they all say he sucked. They don't like him. Right. Kelly Clarkson famously like despised working with him, had to be forced into the studio with him numerous times. Yep. Pink talked about her distaste for him. So he's at a very bare minimum widely known as kind of a shithead. But according to Kesha, it goes way beyond that. But I think 
it should also be stated up here, one of the most honed in pop masters of all time. I mean, the man's track record speaks for itself. He has produced and written some of the most memorable pop hits of the 21st century bar none. So that's also important to put out there, I think. Yeah. I also want to talk about one thing with his artistry that is really worth saying here is that he's incredible at pastiche. Mm. So Max Martin doesn't really have a facility with this. Right. Max Martin sometimes aims for genres, misses them, ends up back in pure pop anyway. Right. Famously thought that Baby One More Time would be a TLC song, which is insane. (laughs) And Luke gets it right on. So Since You've Been Gone is a pop version of Maps by Yaya Yaz. Yeah. And it sounds like that. Mm -hmm. It's done well, and it gives Kelly Clarkson a rock edge that she needed. Katy Perry is drawing on many, many pop stars of years past. It doesn't necessarily feel like new pop music. It feels like old repackaged for new in a great way. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that any of Katy Perry's stuff necessarily feels as boundary pushing as something like Gaga's. No, but they're extremely airtight, zipped up 2010 versions of that. So if you're thinking about I Kissed a Girl, yes, is that giving Gary Glitter or whatever 100%, but it's also done in the absolute most streamlined, absolutely pummeling, utilizing the technology of 2008, 2010 to turbocharged effect. I just think it's worth noting why they connect, I think, is that they both love pop music and they both have the ability to zero in on something that they want to play with, like an idea that has previously been in pop music and play with it and go past pastiche. That is something that they can both do. And I would imagine she has never really said why they work well together, as far as I know, because she doesn't want to talk about him. She can't say much about him. Right. She doesn't want to talk about him. What she has said is that she was obsessed with Max Martin. She was obsessed with Dr. Luke when she was 13, along with Carol King, because she was obsessed with songwriters. And she said that their relationship has been really, really good. Right. And that is what we know about their relationship. Sure. So Kesha accuses Luke of assault and other things in 2014, 15. You're saying Kim comes into contact with him clearly after that. Because you were also talking about how Doja Cat, who's another Luke protege, gets somewhat of a pass here because she had a deal with him in the early 2010s that has extended through the present day, but not true of Kim. She signs with him in 2016. Right. I think it's worth noting some things here. Let's go. Number one, it would probably be very difficult for Kim to get a record deal in 2016 as a trans pop star. I think this is really important and should be said. I can't imagine that many people are interested in signing her. They're definitely interested in signing her as a songwriter. Yes. In 2016, are they interested in signing a trans pop star? No. And she's had to face that. Yes. I don't think she had a lot of options. And I think that is an interesting and sticky part of this difficult conversation that we're going to have to be addressing through our conversation today, which is her working with Luke is problematic as she herself, problematic as she herself might say. But at the same time, one can imagine how hard it might be to turn down working with one of the most certified hit makers of the time period. Someone she looked up to was giving her a chance to have a career as a singer that, as you mentioned, 
one can imagine was not something where she was picking from 10 million options at that particular moment. And probably the single producer who is best suited to her as an artist. Yes, right. I do think that that's true. I think that he is the best suited producer to be able to produce Kim Petras's music and Kim Petras's image. He is the best producer for that. Not to mention that I think she provides him a forum to go even more kind of bonkers than he has in other times. I think she really gives him a venue in a lot of these productions to try more outrageous or more interesting things than he had in the past with, say, a Katy Perry. Yeah, I mean, he's a terrible person. They work really well as a team. Yes. That's pretty much what it boils down to. <laughs> there you go. That's the headline. Whether or not you can continue to listen to Kim Petra's stuff is up to you. I switch different depending on the day, but yeah. it's a killer fucking team. And that's just the truth. It's a fact. So they come together in 2016. Yeah. Is the general sense here that the details of this are hard to come by just due to the fact that Kim does not speak about this man for obvious reasons? She gets a ton of blowback the one time. What does she say? She said, I would like my fans to know that I wouldn't work with somebody that I believe to be an abuser of women. Right. So she gets a ton of blowback for that because that clearly reads as if she is denying that this happened. There's kind of no other way to read that. Right. But she's not that famous then, so nothing really happens to her. Right. Then she gets booked as the opening act for Troy Sivan, and people are pissed at him for supporting someone who supports an abuser. I remember that. And she has to issue a statement that says, while I've been open and honest about my positive experience with Dr. Luke, that does not negate or dismiss the experience of others or suggest that multiple perspective cannot exist at once. Right. And she says, I didn't communicate this clearly in the past. Uh-huh. That is not a particularly exciting statement. Yeah. It's hard to know what she could say, though. Right, yeah. And she wants to keep working with him. Again, this is getting into territory where we don't know what she knows and thinks about him. It's so sticky, because clearly she does not desire to cease her working relationship with him for reasons that are probably incredibly complicated on her part. What can you say about that, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. I also don't want to throw up my hands and say it's complicated. She doesn't need to have any culpability in this. Of course, of course. I do think she chooses to work with a bad man. That is something that she does. Yeah. And I don't think her criticism of him has been particularly strong. It's true. But at the same time, we're going to talk about Kim's commercial success. What is all wrapped up in Kim's ultimate struggle to actually cross over into mainstream pop success? Yeah. This is in the mix too. There's the elements of her identity, which I think are a huge part of that conversation. No question about it. I think as much as our culture has evolved on these ideas, I still think it's still maybe a stretch for a lot of mainstream radio listeners to fully accept the idea of a trans pop star. And I'll be so interested to know how many people who listen to Unholy actually clock that that's what's going on there. Yeah. And her entire career from the beginning is shrouded in immense amounts of controversy. She has not had a clear and easy path towards being a hero or a champion in the eyes of the people that she might need to have been because of this. And I do wonder what kind of effects that has had on her. Yeah, and I think it affects her reviews a lot. Yeah. Well, it doesn't affect the New York Times. <laughs> Cara Monica loves Clarity, and we'll get there. Yes. The Pitchfork review of Clarity, which is her first album, and we'll get to the actual content of the album. When you look back, pretty much the criticism of her is that she's with Dr. Luke, because it's a pretty rock-solid album. Yeah. She gets a 7.2, which is fine, but I don't think people want to go up for Kim. I think you're right about that. Some places do, a lot of the gay magazines do, but I think she has a difficult time for a while crossing over and getting critical acclaim from mainstream publications. Right, which I think would want to go up for her 
actually given her identity, championing somebody like Kim Petras would be something that the intelligentsia might be prone to doing if not for the Dr. Luke thing. Yeah. I mean, I can say I work at Vulture. I would have second thoughts about doing a Kim Petras profile right then. Right. I would have absolutely. Yeah. Especially if she won't talk about Dr. Luke. If that's on the do not talk about list or if I think she's just going to give me like a statement that isn't really that good, I wouldn't want to talk to her. It looms over the whole thing. Yeah. It's a fair point. I think also I'm glad that we're having this conversation before we even discuss any of her canonical music because I do think its loomingness is important to have on the table as we now discuss a run of pretty great music that I assume that we're both going to have some nice things to say about. I think we should make sure that we are having this out there. This is table setting for this woman's entire discography, unfortunately. The other thing that I would just put out there is this stuff is out there now in a way that it never has been before. There's plenty of music we are all consuming all the time from past eras that were also made by horrible people. And there's a lot of complexity to these situations because one of the great things about the current moment is that these things are out of the world. Now we're aware of people like Dr. Luke and what they have done in the world, whereas that has existed in so many different ways throughout all of pop music history. So it's hard to know what's clean and what's not when you're putting on music. It can be a little bit complicated. It's like what you know, what you don't know, who knows? Right. We're all still listening to Be My Baby. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Perfect example. All right. So let's talk about I Don't Want It At All, which is Kim's debut single with fucking Dr. Luke. Tell me how this song sounds, what the vibe of it is, and what Kim's on record strengths and personas as presented through this song are. She comes out fully formed. Everything that we have heard up until now has been bad, but no one's heard it. The only reason anyone is talking about it at all is that she becomes what she is here, which is a fully formed pop star with ideas, with points of reference, and with a great, great voice. Mm -hmm. I Don't Want It At All is one of the best songs of the 2010s. No question. It's an incredible song. It's a take on Material Girl by Madonna. Madonna is the inspiration for Kim in a lot of ways. She references a lot of other people. It always comes back to Madonna. And I think it's only right that she begins with something that is kind of an update of Material Girl that maybe doesn't have the satirical edge that Madonna wanted it to have. Right. But in that way, it is more in line with ideas of camp than Madonna would be. Mm. Right. She pushes it so far. It's tacky. It's kitschy. It's bright. It's artificial. And it's perfect. I want all my clothes designer. I want someone else to buy them. Yeah. Is the great lyric from that song. Proudly kind of anti-feminist too, which is also interesting, I think. It's like the opposite of independent woman or something like that. Yeah, it is. The opposite of pop feminism with a wink. I don't think that she's actually necessarily putting that out there, but the fun of the song is the sort of garish sense of, I just want to be a trophy wife, essentially. It's a hyper-feminization as well on her behalf that I feel like plays into her trans identity. Absolutely. It feels like she is coming out with the girliest, brightest thing that she can possibly come up with. And it's like a shot across the bow. It's supremely yeah. feminine. Baby, don't you fight it. Close your eyes and swipe it. Maybe I could be with you. If you buy me diamonds and you keep me smart, and baby, I can be with you. 
And in the music video, she invites someone who is perhaps the closest analog for Kim Petras in pop culture history, which is Paris Hilton, who has all of the work bitch, work queen narrative around her and also all of the problematic history. Mm. And they link up and maximize their joint slay at the end of Kim Petras's debut music video. It's worth noting she's signed on to Luke's publishing house. One of the things that is so interesting to me about I Don't Want It At All, and I think another point that makes it a prototypical Kim song, or the prototypical Kim song in the way that you're mentioning her as coming around fully formed, is it's somehow 80s, 1999, 2008 and 2017 all in one swoop. Yeah. When I listen to the song, I hear Madonna. I hear flourishes of bright teen pop of the late 90s. I hear Britney. I hear Christina. I hear the sort of Spice Girls bewitched sort of thing going on. And then I definitely hear Kesha and Katy Perry and all of that also in the mix. And yet it has the jagged minimalism of... 2017 pop, you brought up Sophie earlier, there's elements of hyper-popness in this music as well. When I think about the Dr. Luke, Katie songs, those are luscious, every level is filled in the production. This is very minimal, really, really sharp, percussive elements, and there's a jaggedness to the way that this thing hits you that is very 2017 pop to me. It's got a hyper-pop sensibility in some ways. It's a weird off-kilter song, and that's what I think is great about it. Even if it was released in 2011, I don't think it goes to number one or something. Yeah, agree. That's a good point. This is a song made for people who have an understanding of the fun of kitsch and camp and the off-puttingness of that. In the same way that Mommy Dearest is not a drama, this is not a pop song, but it is. They are those things, but they are also weird interpretations of those things. And that's what pushes past pastiche or parody for me, because she loves it too much to parody. And pastiche doesn't bring something new. It's just a replication, I would say, of this bygone era. She is combining and glitching something together that doesn't necessarily feel like it naturally goes together. All of these points of references that you've brought up don't sit well together all the time. Like I said, Sophie is thinking toward the future all the time. She's not retrospective at all. Mm -hmm. And Kim is taking this future thinking music and she's like, what if it was Madonna? Right. Those are antithetical to each other. And yet it works because she does it with a sense of excitement and a sense of femininity and a sense of being like a slightly weird girl. Right. I think it's interesting to get into the intentions of this because you have Dr. Luke here. So you know that his presence in and of itself makes the intentions for this to be big seem kind of inherent to me. I think that they thought this could be something, which I find interesting. I don't know if you get Dr. Luke in the mix to position you as a Charlie XCX figure. If you want to be Charlie XCX, who I think is also an important reference point for Kim vocally and in a lot of ways, Charlie XCX is working with Sophie. She's out there on the sort of fringes in this moment, whereas Kim is working with Dr. Luke. You don't have Dr. Luke with you if you're not looking for some form of mainstream mass approval. That's not what Dr. Luke does. So I agree with your take on the song. I guess maybe my question for you is, what is the intention in terms of positioning Kim in the pop space with this record? I think that in any year, it 
except the year that they released this, I might agree with you. Dr. Luke doesn't have much clout in 2017. Right. It's going poorly for him. Doja hasn't started popping off. No one wants to work with him. He's radioactive right then. And I think that the goal is to, and we should get into this because I think this is something that profiles weirdly don't get into with her a lot. Yeah. She needs to become a gay icon. So you think that's her goal here more so than hitting number one on the Hot 100? I think that's who she's friends with. Right. And I think that that's the music that she knows right then. Right. I imagine that that's what she's listening to as well. I think it feels natural to write those songs. I think also it feels important to say that the sound of pop music is so radically different than this in 2017. Oh, it's Halsey. Right, exactly. It's Halsey. (laughs) I wish I could gif the way you just said that. (laughs) Yeah, it's Halsey. It's bad and bougie. It's Ray Sremmerd. It's a big moment for sort of dour, low tempos, dark tones, hip-hop oriented. Yeah, Alessia Cara. Yeah, so this arriving in 2011 has a more friendly atmosphere to it than 2017 also. I remember hearing this song and having that thought in 2017. In the EDM boom, there's a lane for this song to catch on that doesn't exist here in 2017, I guess. Yeah, I agree with that. Not only is that the tone of pop, but also the nature of pop stardom is also introspective, anxious, dour, authenticity-driven, and this is so not that. This is so celebrating artifice. It felt like someone who knows pop and has different pop values than what are happening at that moment going, actually, I'm not doing any of that shit. You guys are forgetting pop can be fun and bright and stupid and campy and all these things, and we've lost track of that. I remember receiving I Don't Want It at all in that context, thinking to myself, this music is almost like a middle finger to Lord. But I do think it feels honest from her. Agree, a hundred percent. Because there's this history with Katy Perry. She goes on Warp Tour before she's a bright pop star. Yeah. She was doing Christian. There's none of that with Kim. No. Where she exists is all of that pop. For sure. But I just don't think that brand of pop presentation, let's put it that way. Let's take the music out of it. Yeah. That brand of pop presentation is not hot in 2017. No, 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 no. I would never argue that. Yeah. Okay. Are you enjoying this episode? Do you like what you're hearing? Well, you might need to subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access. If you join for just five bucks a month at the Icon tier, you'll get access to all of our bonus content. This includes deep dives into classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope with Rich Doswiak, Taylor Swift's Reputation with Britney Spanos, and Britney's Blackout with Troy McKitty, as well as reviews of new records like SZA's SOS with Owen Myers and Miley's Endless Summer Vacation with Shad D'Souza. With new episodes being published all the time, we also touch on all your favorite new songs, fluctuating pop star Panthe on positions and so much more plus you get access to our discord channel the guest list at my party gorgeous gorgeous and a ton of other great perks so sign up today at patreon.com slash or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode so i don't want it at all gay club smash musical intelligentsia smash no charts nothing happens not a success in any traditional way right. kim becomes as you mentioned gay pop girly du jour i think right out the gate she is a gay club legend yeah i want to harp on how many clubs she's performing at. somehow she is at both the abbey in west hollywood and the rosemont in new york in one night she's there at the same time <laughs> you cannot enter a gay club on either coast without seeing kim petras there yeah. i think she's like andy Warhol sending out people in wigs. <laughs> like, 
she's everywhere. She's in gay clubs every night, it seems. Yeah. She is a permanent fixture there. Yeah, she's in those spaces. She's milking that thing. And then what she does is a really interesting and modern strategy of release, which is she kind of just floods the market for the next couple of years or so with songs. Now, I want to talk about this era one of Kim Petras' music, which to me represents one of the best runs of singles of a pop star in recent memory. There's a lot of yeah. great songs that come out in the mix. What's happening on the rest of these songs? We can point to specific ones that you feel are instructive to help us understand how this builds on what she starts with I Don't Want It At All. Yeah, so the next one is Hillside Boys. Uh, I think Hillside Boys is a great song. Love this song. Hillside Boys is not quite as artificial. It's not quite as tacky as I Don't Want It At All is. Yeah. Tacky said with love. And it's not a persona as much. No, but it has that same sense of it's 1960 and it's 1985 and it's 2017 at the same time. When Kim approaches Pastiche, you never feel like it's a Bruno Mars song, I guess no. is what I'm trying to put out there. There's a real sense of contemporariness at the same time as it's playing with the rhythms of a Motown song as refracted through Cyndi Lauper or something like that. Yeah. It's a really interesting melange in that way that I think speaks to her studiousness. Yes. And I think also the persona continues to build here. Again, she's still got that kind of bratty, drunk Barbie thing going on that I think is very well established, as you mentioned, in terms of her arrival as a pop being, I guess. So those are in 2017. She releases a few other ones like Faded, Hills, Slow It Down. Yeah. But then in 2018 is when I think she really starts to figure out the power of her voice. Right. With Heart to Break and Can't Do Better. Yeah, let's talk about these two. Which are both smashes. Oh, They're so fucking good. They're so good. It's crazy. I mean, Heart to Break is probably the signature song of Era One. Yes. It uses her voice really, really well. She's great when she's at the top of her lungs. There's something in her voice that makes it sound like she's smiling all the time. Mm. It makes her mm. fun. She's a great time to listen to. It's a really fantastic voice when used well. And Heart to Break is perfect. It's so good. It's Ugh. a clean song. These two songs make it clear that she is very good with big emotions. When she has these ginormous emotions, she can scream them out. And that works really well with her voice. So Heart to Break gives me Robin in a lot of shades here. Yeah, sure. Robin is the ultimate cry on the dance floor, modern girly, right? Yeah. That's Robin's whole zhush. Heart to Break, I think this is one of the first examples in Kim's oeuvre where I get that sensation in that queer-to-queer -queer way of those emotions that female pop stars have rendered for decades and centuries or whatever about having their heart broken. I mean, it's the most cliche pop trope of all time. I don't know if it's just me pushing this on her as a fellow queer person, but there's a level of emotional heft that comes across, I think both because of the way that she screams it and also because of who she is. I think there is something queer coded about that expression of yeah. heartbreak and loneliness that she brings to this and gives them a wallop even beyond their perfect conception and performance, I guess. Yeah, I'm down for that totally. I think a queer reading <laughs> of Heart to Break is great. It's so desperate and longing yeah. for someone to like you the throwing up of the hands yes i totally get 
that. And I think even more so on Can't Do Better, which is super 80s. Time after time meets Phil Collins or something like that, and Pat Benatar. Yeah. But is this desperate screaming sort of revelation that she can't have what she wants. Yeah. No matter how great she is, no matter how much she loves this guy, no matter what she would do for him, whatever, there's no way this guy's ever going to love her. That is a powerful and very queer-coded, emotional POV to take on a song that I think she really delivers on this record. Oh, you can't do Yeah, she's great. Two things I want to bring up while we're talking about this era. Yeah. Number one is the album covers. At first, she calls herself like a Barbie doll on I Don't Want It All. She's Sugar Baby Barbie. Yes. And then on Heart to Break, she's Desperate Barbie. And in Can't Do Better, she's 80s Barbie. That's what's going on. And she emphasizes this with a bunch of album covers that are just neon signs right. of her face, all in different colors, which is really iconic to me. But it just shows how fully formed her vision was. The fact that the album covers represent her statements so well and her artistic intention so well is kind of shocking for this young of an artist. That kind of intentionality doesn't really happen. Yeah. The other thing that I want to mention is in 2017, I think a person who really gets maybe the best out of Kim that she's given so far is Charlie when she releases Unlock It. Sure. At the end of 2017, Pop 2, one of the great pop albums of the 21st century, maybe the greatest, comes out and one of the high points on it is Kim's verse on Unlock It, which of course has gone viral on TikTok now, but she I think really gets something out of Kim that is special. She also works really well off of Kim. Charlie's, she has a more stoic energy on Unlock It versus Kim is like this bratty little fun-loving valley girl, which I think yeah. works really, really well. Kim obviously had that on I Don't Want It At All, but I think that Charlie takes it to a next level. Caught in the lip lock when we pit stop Calls me kiss, tastes like cherry maraschino, right? Passenger seat I think that that's a landmark moment for Kim as an artist. There's something that's really special and pristine about that verse. And a bit of a baton passing coronation between the gay pop queen of the moment and the ascendant gay pop queen of the moment. I mean, yeah. Charlie does this with many women in the alternative pop space where she sort of corrals them all together and creates a world for them all to exist in. And I think that that feels like a moment there. Yeah, Charlie's pop too. And then Charlie feel like she is the ringmaster around this whole slew of alternative pop stars who are given a chance to do something. And I think Kim takes the chance more than almost anyone else on Pop 2. Yeah. I think the only other thing that I would want to put out there about Era 1 songs of Kim's, which we've talked about most of them, there's also If You Think About Me, Homework, One, Two, Three Days Up with Sophie all the time, one of my favorites, is, again, I think this speaks to what you were saying about her ability to transcend the pastiche. These songs sound different and warp in a lot of different influences into them. Some of them are more 
hip hop and R&B codes. Some of them seem like they're referencing mid 90s R&B and hip hop tropes. Some of them sound like they're motioning towards Ace of Base. There's all kinds yeah. of things that I was writing in my notes here. But I think somehow they all come out in the wash really sounding like Kim Petra songs, which I think really speaks to her ability and knowledge of pop music to transcend these influences. She doesn't come out of these sounding like she's trying to remake the song she's referencing. She really comes out of them sounding like herself. And that is a huge asset for a pop star who deals in this kind of backward looking motion stuff to be able to do. And I think that's a function of her and a function of Luke and her together, because it's really what you were setting up at the beginning of the conversation. They share that particular point of view and they blow it out to the biggest maximalist version possible with one another. They give each other permission to take that to its logical end through these songs. Yeah, two things. Number one is I think that she, in this era, and I think she hasn't really gotten back to this, and I think this is part of the issue with later stuff, although I do like clarity, is that she sounds so warm here mm. as a presence. Yes. She is a welcoming, fun person. And that's why they work so well at gay bars. Yes. She wants you to come in and join her. I don't want it at all. It's bratty, but it's not intimidating. She's a popular girl, but she wants you to hang out with her and bitch about things. She's not ever inaccessible. Yes. She later does do that. She's edgy, but in a way that doesn't feel exclusive. She's cool, but you don't feel like she's too cool for you, which is something that maybe even Charlie has in some moments where she's almost too cool for school in some ways. There's something about Kim where it's cool to like her, but it's also not inaccessible in that way. Yeah, Charlie, I mean, when you listen to Unlock It, Kim couldn't really do that Unlock It repeat in the way that Charlie does because Charlie does emotional detachment all the time. That's what track 10 is. Right. It's using these glitches to form some kind of emotional distance from the audience and that push and pull is really exciting and that's all great. Kim doesn't do that. Yeah. Kim is exciting and warm and fun to play with. And that's great. And her humanity really shines through. And I think yes. that that's what creates some of the emotional movingness of a song like Can't Do Better, which is so overblown or, you know, whatever. But at the same time, you get a real sense of her emotional mm -hmm. heft through these songs in a way that Charlie only in fleeting moments really reveals. Era One also includes part of Turn Off the Lights. The first part of it, she later puts it out as kind of a deluxe album. That's also just kind of a part two. But I I think it's important to yeah. talk about Turn Off the Lights in terms of Era One. Yeah. Turn Off the Light is a Halloween album. It's all Halloween spooky songs. It's largely filled with references to old horror movies. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark is on it. It's very campy. I think of it as an anti-Christmas album. A lot of the time, pop stars who were at her level, just kind of breaking through, will release a Christmas album yeah. as a way to get plays and have people get to learn their voice. Right. I think of this as an anti-Christmas album instead of a Christmas album because she's a little funnier, a little wittier. She went for a Halloween album, which I think is really original and a really smart idea. And what's happening like aesthetically on this record that's either in conversation with or different from the Era One songs? I mean, it's kind of just the other Era One songs filtered through green and purple and orange lenses. Mm. It's a lot campier. There are songs called Transylvania. There's Death by Sex. Yeah. Elvira is there. Boo Bitch. It's very, very, very campy. It's way funnier. It's way more filled with jokes. It's a little bit bloghousey to me when I listen to this music more so than the Era 1 stuff. A, of course, it's not as bright tone necessarily as that music is. And it's also Daft Punk as Justice bloghouse vibes.
and in some ways, I think these Turn Off the Light series are as much showcases for him as they are for her. I mean, a lot of the songs are just productions of Dr. Luke's without any Kim vocals on them Yeah, that are denser and more filled out than the sort of minimalism meets maximalism of the Era 1 songs. These are more filled out productions to me, and they sound a lot like what Dr. Luke would have made if he was in Daft Punk or Justice when I listen to Close Your Eyes, for instance. It's also a little post-Fame Monster, because yeah. Fame Monster in some ways is like a Halloween album, I think, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think that there's an element of that reference going on here as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Kesha's Blow, I kept thinking about on Turn Off the Lights, another great Dr. Luke production. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Till the World Ends as well, specifically for Kesha. In a sort of way that makes this a little icky, there's Kesha in Kim, and there's Kesha in a lot of this stuff. I mean, she looms over this stuff. Yeah, I think Kesha is more present on Turn Off the Lights than she has been yeah. ever before and ever again in Kim, but yes. But in terms of that party reveling persona that Kim puts out there. Bratty too. Yeah, that bratty party yeah. monster, that's definitely here. And that adds a layer of <laughs> to the whole thing in some ways. Yes. Here's my question for you. So we're in 2018, Kim's had this run of singles. They're beloved by the gay community. I'd say there's a critical stamp on them. She doesn't release any albums. There's no impetus on Kim. I've always been really intrigued on that. What do you think the idea is? What are they aiming for here? You mentioned that you don't think I Don't Want It At All had intentions to go much further than just establishing her as a gay pop girly. Is that the continued idea here? What are they shooting for with all of this stuff, commercially speaking? I think they're trying to test the limit on Kim to see how big she can go because I think a lot of people aren't yet convinced that a trans girl can be a huge pop star. Right. I think they're trying to figure out how big she can get. Right. And I don't think they know yet. I think releasing singles in order helps every person at that gay bar know every single song rather than if you released them as albums. And I think a lot of people do know every single Kim song from Era 1, at least the big ones. I think it's a lot of tentatively dipping your toe in the water, figuring out what's going on. Are people responding to this? Because you have Heart to Break, which is like a perfect song. Do people want this? This one fag interviewer is like... <laughs> This is going to be the song that pushes you into being super famous. The stratosphere of super fame is the quote. And she's like, is it? I'm not sure about that. And of course he thinks that because it's a perfect song. But whether or not she can go bigger than the gay community, I think is still a question at this point. I have a very strong recollection, and I'll have to look this up to confirm it, of Heart to Break does hit the bubbling under something, whatever. And I remember Kim tweeting something along the lines of, finally. Yeah. And it just made me think, oh, so she really does want this to be crossing over. She's not Charlie making pop too. She wants this to be on the radio. She's looking for this to happen and it isn't. So yeah. that tweet has always stuck out in my mind, I guess. Like I said, she's extremely ambitious. She's extremely, yeah. extremely ambitious. She has been since the first moment she popped out of the yeah. world. She is an ambitious person. I think she's always wanted chart success. And I think, unfortunately, the message she got from Arrow One was that this wasn't working and that she needed a change. How how does she relate to her transness? So she's obviously, as I mentioned, a historic 
figure. It's implicit. It's obvious. There has not been, even at the sort of low level or niche level of success that Kim is having here, she's gotten to a place that most openly trans artists have never gotten to before at this point in their career. I think any. I think you can confidently say any. Any. How does she relate to that in the way that she speaks about her place as a trailblazer in this way? Is she drawing attention to it or is she letting it be implicit? She doesn't have to draw attention to it because everyone's asking her about it. And she gets a little annoyed at it. She talks about wanting to be an advocate for the LGBTQ community all the time. She really wants that. She knows that her biggest supporters are gay men. She loves gay men. Yeah. She loves being a woman. All of that's true. Yeah. She would prefer for if Heart to Break was not thought of as being a song by a trans pop star. Right. There's this line from one of the interviews where they go, we've now arrived at the transgender portion of the interview. And she goes, oh shit. Yeah. She doesn't want to be a trans pop star. I think she's really happy to be in the LGBTQ community. I think she loves that. Yes. I think she loves being a trailblazer, but she doesn't want to be seen as anything other than a pop star. And I think that that's where that tension lies. And I also think people are telling her constantly that it's a hindrance and that's difficult. And so in thinking about the fact that this music didn't turn Kim Petras into a mainstream pop sensation, what do you chalk that up to? Is it everything that we've just talked about? Is it her transness? Is it the Dr. Luke connection? Is it this music and presentation maybe being slightly off from what was happening in pop at large at that moment? How do you view that? It's all of those things. I think the thing that we have to answer here is why didn't Kim become huge in Era 1 when her music was at its best? And why is she kind of falling off now because of it? Fallen off, but also a Grammy winning chart top. Yeah, just in terms of quality. Yeah. And I think all of those things work against her. The fact that Dr. Luke is there so people don't feel comfortable getting fully behind her. Except Doja Cat is the biggest star on the planet. Right. So that's one thing that hinders her. But then it doesn't hinder Doja Cat because she doesn't have other things that are really working against her. But Doja Cat is making music that's a little bit more comfortable situating itself in the time. Yes. That this is happening. She breaks through with a meme song. Yes. So she can do that. Also incredible performer. Incredible performer. So Dr. Luke is one thing. I think chalking it all up to Dr. Luke is a little sad. Yeah, especially when he helps make some songs that make her more popular than she would have been without him. I think her transness does not help. I mean, of course it doesn't. Right. It does help her get a certain level of niche success. I mean, all of the gay mags in the world want to profile her. She could be a grand marshal for any pride parade in the world if she just asked. But it is a niche success. So in thinking about her next moves, she releases what is called her debut solo album, Clarity, in 2019. How does she shift her approach here? And is it with the goal in mind of fixing what they might have viewed as the things that hindered the crossover success of the Era 1 music? How do you view this music differently or how is it building on what she did before and with what intent? Well, the first thing that she does that is very similar to the way that she was doing things before is she releases a cavalcade of singles. Yeah. She releases a ton of singles from Clarity before Clarity comes out. She is doing bitchy in a way that feels inaccessible. Mm. I think what's gone from Clarity, and I like a lot of songs in this album, is The Warmth. Right. This is a very icy album. Yes. I mean, the biggest hit from it is a song called Icy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. imagery that it's bringing in is a hell, it's shining, it's icy. These are all cold images that she's bringing in. And I also think her vocal performance changes to be a little bit more aloof a lot of the time. Mm. It's not quite as welcoming. It's not quite as fun. 
as she used to be. There's a lot of fun on this album, but she's not having as much fun vocally. It's interesting because as I'm thinking about the narrative or sort of the queerness of this music, I think this record, one thing it also does is it does touch more contemporary pop sounds of that exact moment. Icy is a very clear reference to The Weeknd Starboy, which had come out a couple of years earlier. You've got the slamming down the middle dance song, like a sweet spot or something like that, that feels almost Kylie meets Britney. Again, Daft Punk, a little one more time. So baby, don't There's a lot of references to like having her heart calcify. She says on Icy, you've turned my heart into a glacier. When I'm thinking about the experience of rejection or loneliness or heartbreak experienced by queer people, there's a dead-eyed effect that comes after having your heart broken. If I'm thinking about the hopeful optimism of the Era 1 songs, this feels like someone who's thou actually experienced a certain degree of having had her heart open and now it feels closed and she's entered into some sort of armor-shielded stance is what a lot of these songs sound like to me. Yeah. It's interesting to contrast something like Personal Hell, which is one of my favorites on the album, with Heart to Break. Yeah, right. They're both these desperate songs, pleading songs, but she doesn't sound as desperate and pleading on Personal Hell. Personal Hell is a lot more confident, a little bitchy, which is fine. I like it. It really reminds me of a Blackout song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very Blackout. You know what? I was just thinking about the weekend thing stuck with me a little bit, not just because Icy aesthetically reminds me of Starboy, but because I wonder, is there that same sort of vibe where the weekend revels in Bacchanalian excess? That's kind of his persona. Mm -hmm. And yet you sense either explicitly or implicitly a lot of pathos beneath the surface. I wonder if this music is somehow operating in that same guise. There's a sadness to the decadence or something in this music. Yeah, I think Kim looked around and was like, is anyone doing something I can relate to? Right. And I think The Weeknd is the closest in 2019 who is successful to doing something that Kim can maybe emulate. So I'm not surprised she took a few pointers from him. I'm thankful that she doesn't go too R&B with it. Right. Except Got Your Number is the light mid-90s R&B hip-hop track that is very successful. This is one of my all-time favorite Kim songs. Oh yeah, it is a little R&B. It's a great song. But this is one of the only songs that really sounds like an Era 1 song to me on this record. Yeah, I agree. Got My Number is brighter, it's warmer, it's more fun. Yeah. And then there's Doom. <laughs> which is a little can't do better. It's definitely the tackiest song on this record. Yeah. This is the one where she says, you do me so good that I'm singing high notes. <laughs> and then she sings high notes after an octave up, which is so tacky and kitschy and yeah. bad. And I love it. It's dirty. There's a lot of wink wink on this album. I remember her announcing this song by asking her Twitter followers, do you want a slut anthem? Yeah. 
<laughs> Which is funny on its face, but also is just indicative of her fluid relationship to gay pop lingo. Yes. Her membership in the community. There's something about her arising from us and being part of us that maybe contains her in ways she doesn't want to be in terms of her commercial success, but also makes her so endeared to us in this particular way. At this time, yeah. Yeah. She also has on Personal Health, she does the Only Your Hands Can Make Me Come Alive. alive. <laughs> It's so funny. Uh, it does, okay. Like, it's like a 7.2, I think, on Pitchfork. John Carmack at the Times is obsessed with it. He ranks it as the fourth best album of the year. The only straight person who listened to this album on Earth, perhaps. He's the only person in the world who doesn't like Charlie, but likes this album. Yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy. <laughs> Do you think that this was meant to break her out in some way? And again, why not? <laughs> I do think they're aiming to break her out at this point. Yeah. I think that they're like, okay, we'll do it. We'll put out an artistic statement from you. Because that's why you put out an album, right? Is to say, this is who I am. Yeah. World. I'll go and I'll promote it. I'll do all of the press junket stuff. I'll do all of the interviews for it. I'll get reviewed. This is who I am right now. Yeah. I think they want her to break out. Yes. It does not happen. No. At all. In fact, in some ways, this music felt less even vital amongst our community than the Era One stuff did. I think it's the lack of warmth. I think that there is something to this that feels at a remove, not in a yes queen bitch way, because that's what Charlie does when she's at a remove. Kim is just a little more removed than she used to be. She's not someone on this album that you want to hang out with as much. But we should still say these are super well-made pop songs on the whole. Oh, completely pristine. They're still really great reflections of what Kim and Luke do well. This is a great collection of records for the most part Icy's incredible got your numbers incredible doomy's incredible clarity the title track is great I mean, there's a lot of good songs on this album i think even a lower tier track like meet the parents is pretty solid yeah that's one of the moments where she gets to be silly and funny again yeah i always like when the record gets to that point because i'm kind of like oh right i love when kim is funny yeah and that was funny i can take it to a light I agree with you, though. This record reminds me of Blackout in a lot of ways in the sense that it is completely icy to the touch. It's incredibly icy and synthetic and out of remove. But like Blackout, I wonder, because I think Blackout is weirdly, like, not to use the cliche, Britney's most personal album ever, in a sense, because I think it has this really weirdly honest reflection of her state of mind at that particular moment. I'm getting the sense from you that you don't feel like Clarity achieves that same sort of duality. Blackout is a real tight wire act, and it's very, very special, and I think it's a very, very hard thing to replicate. Yeah, it's true. But clearly a touchstone for this. I mean, it's a touchstone for everything in the hyperpop world at this point. Yeah. I think the best song that Kim releases in 2019 is Click. I think it's so good. When I came to the thing about it feeling out of remove and cold, I listened to her entire discography chronologically and I listened to Clarity and then I listened to Click and I was like, oh, she's much more fun here. Yeah, right. I'm having fun listening to her on Click when she goes, bunch of bad bitches in my Click, we on a roll, yeah. I was like, I would like to be in Kim Petras' Click. Uh-huh. Bunch of bad bitches in my Click, we on a roll, yeah. Kim bust a ball up in this bitch, now watch me go. Bust it down, 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 look at my wrist, I'm such a show. Designer, everything. 
I think the best song from this era is Malibu. Oh, Malibu slaps. Which comes out in 2020. In terms of the end of the pre-capital era, mm-hmm. Malibu is as good as those Teenage Dream songs. Malibu is incredible. I mean, that is a euphoric joyride. When someone says to me what a platonic ideal of the Song of Summer should be, it's this song. Yeah. This song is perfection. It was. And that it was, unfortunately, I think, if Malibu could have broken her out, it was not during COVID. Right. It releases right after COVID starts. Yeah. It's supposed to be the Song of the Summer of 2020. It does not happen. Instead, we go for more removed stuff like Future Nostalgia, which catapults Dua into the upper echelon of pop stars. I just remember when Malibu came out, though, I was like, if this song can't make this a superstar, what can? Yeah. You don't get songs this fucking good that often. No, it's a great song. And I remember hitting that frustration point hearing that song. And I remember being like, what is it? And again, I can only come back to the transphobic aspect of the whole thing. Or the fact that do pop songs like Malibu, like Teenage Dream, like, is that just not what we're into anymore? It's not. I think that that's part of it. Are they too maximalist pop perfection? I think it hit at the wrong time. Yeah. I think Malibu, maybe for 2020, we could have had fun with it. But when you think about the big, big pop songs of 2020, you think about Dua, you think about The Weeknd again, you think about even Rain On Me pops off a little bit. Those are songs that don't make you want to go out and have a drink with your friends. Malibu did have at that time a certain FOMO inflicting effect. Right. But Don't Start Now is a big disco club banger and Rain On Me is a big fucking dance pop record. Malibu is better than both of those songs to me. Oh God, those are three really good songs. I don't know if I can rank them. They're all really good, but Malibu's as good as those songs. Yeah, but Rain On Me is also about making it through something. Right. I'd rather be dry, but at least I'm alive. Oh, I think a lot of drunk people during COVID really felt that. Yeah, and Don't Start Now is just Dua in and of herself is- She's removed presence. Yeah, but you were saying that people don't want Kim as removed presence on the other record. What can she do? I feel like she's backed into a corner here a little bit. I agree, I think she is. I mean, Dua is an 80-foot model who has millions of dollars to put through music videos. Her promotional cycle is way different than Kim's. What I do think Malibu does is gets her signed at Capitol. Right, which happens in 2021. But also feels both exciting and also I remember being like, shit. Because I also do remember feeling like, what are they going to do with her? And I think that that's been borne out a little bit here. Absolutely, it has. I mean, number one, she stops having any big emotions. I think they are trying to make her more accessible. She has not released a song as desperate as Heart to Break, as gaudy as I don't want it at all. She stops going big. She's a much smaller artists now other than Slept Pop but I think Slept Pop as an EP kind of gets things through and they weren't trying to break her through as much especially post on Holy she's much smaller okay this is what I want to talk about Jason what does Kim want pop stardom she wants to be a superstar she wants that yes I get that but is that the right intention for her oh no this is the thing we haven't brought up yet and I think obviously we're going to get into this in a moment when we talk about the Pantheon but there is an entire lane now of yes pop 
singers who are not charting superstars that have indie cred and make careers off it. We've been talking about Charlie nonstop. She's the queen of this. There is an entire lane. Charlie. Robin, Carly, Tuve Lu. It's a huge world. They tour. They're successful. They're working pop acts and they never chart a song. To me, at this point in 2021, I was like, that's where Kim should be. Kim, just go live there. That's a great way to be a pop artist in the modern era without having to find a way to get on fucking pop radio, which is mostly depressing as hell in 2021, 2022, 2023. Yep. This is where I start to get confused a little bit because I'm just kind of like, there is a lane for Kim Petras. And I think her driving further towards that with Charlie as a North Star, with Robin as a North Star is a really exciting and I think viable path forward for Kim Petras. But clearly either that's not financially viable or as you're saying, maybe she doesn't want it. She wants to be mainstream pop girl. Yes, absolutely. This is why I keep coming back to her ambition. She said that she wants to be one of the great pop songwriters of all time. Right. And she's dead serious about it. Well, Charlie wants that fucking too. Charlie loves talking about shit like that. Yeah, but Charlie wants to be cool with it. Charlie wants people in the know to know. Yeah. Kim Petras wants to be a superstar. Yeah. I also think this lane doesn't feel comfortable totally for these girls yet because I think Charlie contains this conflict as well. I think Charlie, yes, yes she has taken her detours where she clearly has abandoned this as a pursuit through her hyper pop era, whatever. I think Charlie, if you asked her, also thinks she should be touring stadiums like Taylor Swift also. So this lane does exist. And I think it's a really exciting lane that I wish some of these girlies would own a little bit more is what I'm trying to say. I think it would be cool to see this be less of something that they feel like they're falling back into after they can't get what they want out of the mainstream success. And it'd be interesting. I wonder what it would feel like if they were owning that a little bit more. Well, we have one of those who's doing that. It's Jessie Ware. Yes, exactly. Jessie Ware is owning it right now. And I think it's because she almost lost her record deal completely. Right. But you have to flop first. Charlie, same deal. Charlie had boom clap, that sucker record stiffed, and she had to figure out what to do. Yeah. That is what happens. Robin, same fucking deal. They've all been through this. Carly. Carly, same fucking deal. They all have to flop first, which fine, I get that. But being a centrist pop star in 2023 is mostly sucky and not exciting. That's why I keep referencing BB Rexa. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, she's a completely anonymous pop star who has billions and billions of streams on Spotify, but nothing for her albums. No one knows that her albums exist. It's like the opposite of Kim. Kim's big personality, her records, the best ones have this really clear POV. They're exciting. They're excellent. BB Rexa could have 10 trillion number one hits and people would still have no fucking idea who she is. She's completely anonymous. I think just as a consumer and fan of pop music, when Kim signed the Capitol deal, I cringed because I was like, what is this going to mean for you? And you hear a song like Future Starts Now, which was supposed to be the lead off for her major label debut. And it's one of the rare moments where a Kim single was like, Ugh, you know what I mean? It's okay. It's okay. Coconuts. Coconuts is good.
I like coconuts. I like Slut Pop. Yeah, Slut Pop, great. Tell us about Slut Pop. Slut Pop is good. I think Slut Pop certainly serves a position in the culture that other things were not filling. Yeah. This themed EP gives her the leeway to be as dirty, as winky, as tacky as she wants in a way that a straight ahead album wouldn't let her do. And it's also funny, what I kept thinking about listening to it yesterday was what it's doing in a way is peeling back the wink wink purr purr of most mainstream pop stars presentations of sexuality. It's like taking I'm a slave for you and just making it completely explicit in a way that's actually hilarious. I think that's part of the humor of slut pop to me is so much female pop music is about this lasciviousness that then has to get masked in palatable ways to play on the radio. And this is essentially just peeling that palatability mask off of pop music, essentially. Yeah, and that's great and it's fun. But those things are not a part of her major label era. Yeah. Because something happens that you guys might have heard of. Yes. Called Unholy. And now we are living in a post-Unholy universe. Do you want to talk about Unholy? I want to talk about Unholy. And I want you to tell us what Unholy sounds like and what you think about Unholy. Unholy is a song. It's drawing on chamber choral traditions to do something that's supposed to be naughty. It's about a straight man cheating on his wife with a stripper. Sam Smith narrates it. They are trying to dirty up their image and they enlist Kim Petras for that who is already dirty but who is not as popular as Sam and so it's an attempt at a joint slay. Yeah. They're both queer. Sam is non-binary. Kim is a trans woman. So that all happens. For someone who released Slut Pop and is now trying to do something risky in the terms of Madonna which is clearly how they're positioning Unholy. It is a remarkably chaste song. They're both queer and Sam is just narrating it in the music video. They're like the MC from Cabaret. Right. And then Kim, I guess, is the stripper that the straight man is in love with. But her verse is just about shopping again, which is not so scandalous. And it's focused on a straight man. Like you made the big queer pop song of the 2020s so far. And it's about a straight guy. Come on, guys. Okay, let me ask you this, Jason. Uh-huh. When you first heard this song, did you think this song was going to be the phenomenon that it became? Because I certainly did not. Well, I first heard it on TikTok. I don't know if you're on TikTok. <laughs> Yeah, call me old, bitch. Okay, yes, I am on TikTok. <laughs> yes, I am. The girls are not on TikTok sometimes. I am on TikTok. Uh-huh. I'll just say, when I first heard this song, I did not understand. I was like, what is this? Is this what people want from Sam Smith, who heretofore has been known as the most bland, balladeer, boring pop star of their generation, more or less, this side of Adele? I heard this record and I was like, this isn't going to be anything. Why is this song such a fucking phenomenon? I don't understand. Because it's hooky. It hits. The truth of the matter is on TikTok, you need one idea. Right. Because it loops. And they have one idea, which is that big choral hook. And it doesn't matter otherwise. There's nothing else to it, really. Okay, what do you make of Sam extending their hand to Kim here? I mean, that was one of the sweetest elements to this song. Yeah. Is that Sam 
took their platform and extended their hand out to Kim. They're definitely a fan of Kim. Yes. They are totally a fan of Kim. They know Kim plays at the gay bars. They go out in London and they dance to some Kim Petras <laughs> and they wanted to make a song with Kim. Yeah. They probably think Kim is fab. But I also think there was a political bent to what they were doing. They have come into this queerness. I mean, when they started, they were explicitly like, I don't use pronouns in my music so that it's universally accepted. I mean, that was their entire narrative early on. So they've really 180'd on that in a way that is exciting in a mainstream pop context to see. They mature. Yes. I mean, as much as I don't care for most of their music, I get that they represent something good. So it was nice to see them usher Kim. Yes. Do you think this song has made Kim a pop star? No. Somebody that I used to know didn't make Kimbra a pop star. Right. That's a good comp. Or Gautier, really. Well, Gautier didn't want to, though. Gautier could have been. Right. Gautier didn't release any music for 85 years after that. Yeah. You know, could have capitalized. Right. She's kind of anonymous on this song. She sings about shopping. She has a good verse. I like her voice on it. It's probably the high point of the song for me. Completely agree. But I don't think people are immediately going to check out Kim Petras's page after they hear this song. Yeah. I don't think they're all clicking on Kim Petras and saying, what is she up to? And I also don't think the singles that she's been releasing after would compel them to listen to more. When this happens, when you have a big breakthrough as a feature in this way, the next thing you do has to fucking smash while everyone's looking at you. Not to keep bringing her up, but Kesha had to go from that Flo Rida song right into TikTok. And if it wasn't TikTok, the window closed. Charlie had to go right from Fancy into Boom Clap. There's plenty of examples. Like if you're going to convert here, the next thing you do has got to be a heat rock. And I just feel like... Kim has released since this the worst music of her career, bar none. We can talk about Jesus Was a Rockstar, Burr, and her most recent single, Alone, here. They're the three categorical worst songs she's ever made, in my opinion. They are tragic. Burr is a jackhammer to the ear. It really truly is. It feels like your head is getting hit with rocks over and over <laughs> as you're listening to it. It's tragic. Jesus was a rock star. It feels like it's aiming for some kind of scandalousness with the title and then it's so nondescript yeah. and there's nothing scandalous about it. I don't think she's that scandalous actually. I think she's pretty straight ahead. I think she likes doing slutty things. Yeah. But otherwise I don't think she has an instinct towards scandal naturally and I think people are asking her to do it because she's trans. Mm. Which is unfortunate. Yes. And then alone is boring. It's boring as hell. What a disappointment. That's like the edging song or something like that. That song sets you up for something that seems like it's going to be exciting and then just lands with an absolute thud. I can't stand that song. Okay, so final question here is Kim just announced a couple of weeks ago the release of her quote unquote debut album, although LOL, because like we've already, whatever, like, Feed the Beast, which is coming out on June 23rd. She's released a track list. There's quite a panoply of A-list collaborators here. Dr. Luke is obviously back. You have Ilya, Max Martin, Rami Yacoub, Red One, Esther Dean, Ali Temposi, Ian Kirkpatrick. Bangs is featured. Obviously, Nikki is featured on Alone. I guess I'm wondering, we've been talking a lot about how Kim's post-Unholy music has disappointed What would you hope for for this music? Looking at this record as it's on the horizon, like what are you hoping we get out of Kim's first major label album? I'd like a sense of fun or a sense of play. I want there to be some camp sensibility, some feeling of hearkening back to what Kim is good at. I'm hoping for 
big emotions because she's so strong when she's having moments of desperation or she's doing huge declarations of love. Like this is something that she's very, very strong at. And I don't necessarily see those as defining features of her post-capital career or more specifically her post-unholy career. I do think it's interesting and notable that Coconuts is on the track list, which is probably my favorite yes. single that she's put out since being at Capitol. So that's exciting. But I'm really hoping for a sense of fun and a sense that it's Kim because a lot of her music has been very anonymous lately. This record, I think, like, I'm slightly surprised that it is getting a release date and stuff given the reception to all of the music. I mean, how, I guess my last question about the new album would be, what does this mean that she's actually going to put this album out? And, like, is does this have any chance of hitting, you know? Because, I mean, the truth of the matter is that all of the singles that we have talked about that we haven't liked, including Alone, which clearly felt like the biggest swing, they clearly paid for the Nicki verse. I mean, you know, the Better Off Alone sample, that was clearly, like their throw everything at the wall let's try to get this to click thing and it doesn't feel like it's really lit the world on fire or anything how do you think this record's gonna land i have high hopes and low expectations mm -hmm. the people who can make something a hit the people who work at spotify the people who are various radio djs i think they'll all listen i think that she has earned like a cursory listen to this album right like i think that that's inherently true i would imagine that tiktok is considering this album as an option of something mm -hmm. that they might push but I don't think she's a slam dunk I think that she has right now a potential I think the window's closing and I don't think it's a guarantee yeah and I think this record's gonna have to get serious critical plaudits if it even wants to achieve sort of like the niche legendy status that I think maybe she's gonna end up being stuck with for the rest of her career or whatever however you want to frame that or there's going to be need to be a song here that nobody in this entire focus grouped record label production of this record picked out as like some sort of viral hit that just organically happens. Because otherwise, I don't really feel like there's heat around this album outside of the people that were already invested in Kim's career. That's my vibe on it. I agree with it. And I actually think that if it's going to follow the alone for Jesus is a rock star trend, she might alienate the fans that she does have, which is to me even the bigger worry. It's frustrating because I really do value her a lot as an artist who has made a lot of music that I've really loved. Of course. And I do really value her and impressed by her boldness to go out there and be this figure. I think that that is meaningful and she has, I'm sure, taken a lot of flack and bullets that we're both aware and not aware of just in terms of doing what she's doing. Her mere existence is still radical in the pop space in a way that is tragic and sad, but also she's necessary. I look at Kim and I get excitement at the idea that she could be the first of her kind in this world and be breaking down these doors that need to get broken down. And we've talked so much on this show in the past about how pop music is the providence of the queer community in so many ways, and yet we're so underrepresented here. And I would love for Kim to find a way to both make interesting music and further her way into more people's eyes and ears. I just want to do it. Let's talk about the pop pantheon. So you have inferred to me that you have some hot takes to bring to this conversation. She's already a niche legend and she's attempting to be an also ran, which is so embarrassing. 
she's not attempting to be an also fan. She is. She's inadvertently ending up there, I think. She's like, woohoo, let me make some fucking Rita Ora music. Actually, it's woo-ah, Jason. Right, right. She's going, woo-ah, let me make some Rita Ora music. So your point is, it depends on who you're asking, more or less. To the queers, she's an East legend. And then to the rest of the world, she's tier five. Oh, this is something I think should talk about. I think a lot of queers feel quite deserted and abandoned by her. I see anti-Kim Petras content on my Twitter a lot these days. Because of the crossover attempts. They would say it's because of Dr. Luke and whatnot. Oh, because of Dr. Luke. But that wasn't really happening before she blew up with Unholy. And I think it's because she's making bad music now. And a lot of queer people are like, she's allergic to slaying. That is the narrative (laughs) around her right now. That is so unfair. Okay, I want to defend my girl here for a second. I agree with you. This music has not been good. Okay, I'm with you. But she made a lot of fucking good music. A lot. You could have a good 20-song Kim Petras playlist that is really solid, better than a lot of your faves. All right, let's put that out there. That's true. Second of all, she's attempting something very difficult that's hard to do. I understand her impulse and desire to cross over. It's a very common thing that most pop aspirants desire. And she's attempting to figure that out in incredibly adverse situation, which is her identity more than anything else. Yes. Some of it is self-inflicted. The Dr. Luke thing. There's elements to this that are perhaps more her own doing. But as you mentioned early in the conversation, she is starting this out, the hardest career in life, besides like being president of the United States, to be an upper echelon pop star, right? Nobody gets to do this with both her hands tied behind her back and her feet in chains. So let's give this girly some grace here. What she's doing here is difficult. I have empathy for what she's attempting here. The music is bad. I agree with you. I'm not into what's been happening, but I do extend to her some grace in that arena. I extend some grace. (laughs) You're a tough fucking cookie. Oh my God. (laughs) All right. So what tier are we putting her in, Jason? We've worked so hard to this point to get here. I mean... I'll still give her niche legend. Yeah. But come back to me in a year time and she might be also ran. Right. She might be in flop. I went to a Halloween party that she performed at in 2021 and I was so thrilled. Mm. It was so exciting to have her there. Everyone in the room was thrilled to have her there and she was so excited to be performing for us. And it felt like there was a give and take and it was fun. And I was like, I want her here. I want her with an audience that cares about her, that knows all of her songs, where she feels like a natural. And that audience does exist. And I'm a part of it. And I would love to hear some music that feels like it's made for that audience again, because I really do think she has something special when she is creating music at the top of her game. All right, I'm with you and I agree with you. And on that note, Jason, what is an underrated Kim Petra song that we could send the podcast out on? Okay, this is the last thing I need to say because I just don't think it's possible to have an underrated Kim Petra song. (laughs) I'd like to narrate for the audience that Louis on the floor. But... The people who are fans of her go through every album and they comb for the good stuff. Every of the one album? Well, and just all of her singles. She released 8,000 singles. Yeah. She also releases such straight ahead pop that the goal is to be hooky. And so if it's hooky, it'll stick. If it's not, it won't. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say a song that some people are going to say is too popular for this, I think. But I'm going to go with Personal Hell. Okay. Which I think is not an unpopular Kim Petra song, but I think it should be in the top, top tier. I think it's great. Okay. I too love Personal Hell. So let's go out on Personal Hell. 
Jason, Frank, <laughs> this has been a ride for the ages. Everything you say is well-reasoned and very intelligent and very smart. <laughs> this is such a caveated state compliment. It's true. It's true. I can't argue with anything that you say. Uh -huh. And I really do appreciate you coming on here and sharing that with everybody. It was fascinating, truly. And I think we both hope for the best for our girl, huh? I hope for the best. She's like my child <laughs> yes. that I am a little angry at right now. <laughs> but I want the best from because I really do believe that she is special. All right, there you have it. Pop Pantheon, Kim Petrus, a certified niche legend. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to the fabulous Jason Frank for being such an amazing guest. Of course, to my man, Russ Martin, for everything he does to make this show happen every week. To PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode. To Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ LOUIEXIV on Twitter and Instagram. Join our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash pop pantheon for bonus content access to our discord and so much more come to gorgeous gorgeous la on june 9th and gorgeous gorgeous new york on june 16th and until we meet again you all have a wonderful life bye bye